Women Making Waves. I'm feeling in a very sorry state. Mm. Susie? Oh no, why, why Linda? I mean, that's... Well, it's because I've just come back from two weeks off. Ah. And I hate that feeling where you've looked forward to a holiday, you know, and you've gone two weeks away. No matter where it is, even if it's not very exciting, the coming back. I know it's kind of like first world problems, but it is verging on the, the dreadful, really. It's funny you should say that, Linda, because I was only just talking about that with one of my daughters because... They came back from holiday about two weeks before me. And when I arrived back, I was still on that high a day after mm. thinking, yeah, this is great. I feel really good. And they were saying, oh, this is just, I don't, I don't know what to do. I, do I need another holiday? Or I don't, I mean, And that lost state, isn't it? That real yeah. lost state. And now, just like you, I'm feeling like it. Three weeks after coming back. It's oh, weird, well, isn't see, it? I came back. On the bank holiday and didn't even enter my cases. Oh, I mean, that's how right. bad it was. And then when I went back to work on the Tuesday, I was like a sulky teenager. <laughs> I almost had to be prodded towards my desk. <laughs> and I had a face on me. And everyone's going, oh, oh, you're back then. Did you have a nice time? And I was going, yeah. And I, bet, I bet they're thinking, they're trying to approach you and ask you nice things about your holiday. Yeah. And then you walk away and they're thinking... Why is she so unhappy? I, know, I, mean, I wish she was say. still away, the yeah. miserable. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say that, Linda, but you said it. <laughs> well, yeah. But That's on like that note, exactly though... how I felt, and it's did, not got much better for the rest of the week. I mean, can we ask you now, without getting the the grur look, did mm-hmm. you have a nice holiday? Can you remember yeah, yeah, that it was very far nice. back? I mean, the only thing I would say is that I've sat here working, looking out on a sunshiny day after a sunshiny day. What happens when I go off on holiday? The sunshine no. disappears. And the further north we went, with every mile we travelled, oh. the temperature plummeted. Oh. It, it was just kind of like in a, in a graph. It was just going all the way down. And then, of course, people in Scotland are going, hey, it's beautiful, it's 19 <laughs> degrees. And I was wearing a cardigan going, 19 oh. degrees is not hot. Oh, it might later. be we're up here, but it's not hot. We've just been you know, down in 30-something, 30 32 and a left. 19 when I got there. I mean, it's 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 not fair, Susie. You are one of only a few amount of people in the UK that have experienced not the sunshine this year. It's quite funny, Linda. You've got a lot. I know we shouldn't. Typical. It's yeah. typical. Typical but, of me. Yeah. If you wanted to find yourself in a place where you would think that is a holiday moment, where would it be? Would it be say in and by the fireplace drinking something nice after a nice walk in the in the day or would you like to be by the sea there's no such thing as a nice walk Susie but <laughs> I quite like I quite like the seaside but I don't like the sand right you don't have to have sand on a beach you, know? you can have pebbles oh you don't want pebbles oh. to hurt your feet Oh, oh no, no! Well, no, if not if you've got the right shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so, what pleases you? What does it take, Chris, to please you to go on holiday? I don't know. Oh, I don't know what pleases me anymore. Actually, since I got back, yeah, there has been no pleasing me. Right, and I've been very, very grumpy. Okay. Okay. And what about you? You you don't look very grumpy at all. No, no, I don't look very pleased grumpy. with yourself. I- yeah. <laughs> She says very enviously. <laughs> I am pleased with myself, though I have, as I said, I've been feeling quite a little bit low after having nice holiday. And we did get the sun, Linda. I can't, I can't get away from the fact we did have the sun. And I came back, and people were saying, "Oh, you look so brown, Susie." But now oh, the sun, really? the tan's going. Even the cream doesn't stop it. And it's not good for your skin. Just to mm. cheer myself up a bit. <laughs> 
the rain's quite good for your skin, I find. So yeah, you know, that's true. Yeah, you're on okay. the upside. Yeah, you know, you, you're probably probably well, worse off, really, with okay. all your sunshine okay. and so, your, oh, your sand. Th- thanks, Linda. Thanks, Linda. Always look on the bright side of life. And talking about on the bright side of life, we have two really, really interesting guests, don't we? Yes, we do. We do. Today, we're going to be meeting Danae Shell. Danae, very, very interesting woman. She saw many examples of workplace discrimination and harassment. And through sheer frustration, she co-founded and is a CEO of Vala. And it's a legal platform for workers. So people can go on there and get really cost-effective advice. People that might not be able to afford to go to law firms mm. for their employment advice. I think that's a great idea. Absolutely. I think it's important. And I'm so pleased that we are going to be speaking to Danae Shal. And we also meet Berenice Smith. Now, she is owner of Hello Lovely. And she is also... a a podcast presenter like us, like us, yes, Linda, yes, like us. She is, I know. The podcast is called The Full Stop. It's a social design project that raises awareness of involuntary childlessness. And that's all mm. here. We're making waves this week. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. Out of sheer frustration, Dene Shell and her friend Kate Ho created the UK's first legal platform for employees. Vala is the platform's name and Dene is the CEO. Denny is recognised as a disruptive innovator and a rising star in the tech industry and recently launched Valor's new discrimination first aid training course, a first in the UK. There is a whole lot more to Dene, and we are delighted to welcome you, Dene, to Women Making Ways. Hello. Hello, and thank you for such an amazing introduction. So pleased to be here. Wow, it's great, it's great to, to have, have you. you. Yeah, it is. Why did you found Vala, this platform named Vala? What's it all about, Dene? Yeah, so Kate and I created Vala, you know, just like you said, it was, it, this is really a rage-based company. We created Vala because we were incredibly angry about the fact that we had seen a lot of careers destroyed for women in technology, for marginalized people in tech. You know, we we were senior enough by that point that people would come to us looking for support and advocacy and we saw people being bullied we saw people going through really tough stuff and we dealt with it ourselves and what really shook us was that people didn't seem to be able to do anything about it because they couldn't afford you know a solicitor a law firm the thing that you would originally think to go to do has just become unaffordable for almost everyone and we wanted to do something about that. And so we started digging into, you know, how does this industry work? How might we use the, you know, the technology skills that we have to do something about that? Wow. Do you think that's more prevalent for women then, Denae? Uh, Do you think the the bullying and, and the problems, do you think it's worse for women? Absolutely. Over half of women in the UK have experienced some kind of sexual harassment at work. It's particularly bad as well for people from historically marginalised backgrounds. Um, So pick pretty much any protected characteristic you can think of, you know, race, disability, LGBTQ+. And the stat is generally something like 
anywhere 60 to 80% of people in those categories will report that they have seen opportunities lost because of that protected characteristic or that they have been bullied against or, you know, in some way unfairly treated at work because of that characteristic of theirs. Well, that's shocking, isn't it, really? How did you and your friend Kate, how did you have the confidence that you could really make a difference with Valor? How did this all come about? Obviously, you are a developer marketer. You have an incredible amount of technical experience in the digital world. But how much confidence you have thinking you could make a difference with Valor? That's a good question. I think on my side, there were a couple of reasons why I thought I could do it. The first one was Kate and I both went through a program called Special Edition that helped women specifically in Scotland in the digital scene to advance to executive or board level positions. And one of the things that they did on this program was they introduced us to a lot of other CEOs who were women. And I remember when I met them, this was four or five years ago, I remember when I met them, I just was gobsmacked because I realized that they were just like me. And, you know, they had the same kinds of problems at a different scale, but they were fundamentally answering the same question. So that gave me a big piece of confidence there that, you know, I could aspire to do something like that. And then the the second thing was, um, we've both worked in startups most of our careers, my entire career. And we've seen a lot of people who don't actually know what they're doing get pretty far. Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Interesting. And there was definitely a moment in my life where I was just like, honestly, like, if these idiots can do this, then I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> and a, a combination of that. And sometimes, you know, it's a combination of the confidence and the just sheer frustration and determination and I think that's what kind of gave us that necessary mix to say no 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 we can do something about this it it helped as well that we Kate and I both really understand how startups work and we've been in a lot of them now and so in terms of like the overall kind of how do you put something like like this together we had built our networks and all that kind of stuff so we, we were doing better there and what's your platform like Danae I mean you, you were saying people can't afford but well, you're absolutely right you know to go to law firms but presumably you must need legal support yourselves how, how does that actually work yeah great question so if you go onto Vala and you have an issue, the first thing that you'll see is the free features of our platform, which allows you to really make sense of what's happened to you. So you can build out a chronology or a timeline of, you know, on this date, this thing happened, on this date, this thing happened. And then you can attach evidence and documents, emails, screenshots, all that kind of stuff into that timeline. You can even just actually just forward them in from your phone because most people use Vala from their phone. That's actually what all lawyers use. I mean, essentially we've built a like a lightweight case management system for consumers rather than for lawyers. So we're giving consumers some of those tools. And then we also have built a ability to then kind of take action once you've made sense of what has happened. So we have a whole library of templates relating to everything from grievances to settlement to employment tribunal documents to allow people, you know, when they want to actually do something to be able to kind of send that professional letter, know how they're supposed to say what they're supposed to say. And finally, we have courses and guidance 
about, you know, how does this process work? How do I identify the legal aspects of my problem? It's a big holistic platform rather than one specific set of features because people need a lot of different pieces of support in order to actually be able to resolve their issue. You're right in the sense that when people do have an issue at work, it's such a minefield to know where to start. So in many ways, Valor is there as the starting point, isn't it? Absolutely. And we, we can take people all the way through from the initial stage. We call it the is this legal stage that they first start with. Like, you know, that bad thing happened. Was that was that legal? Um, all the way through to I want to do something about this. What are my options? To I want to take action to, okay, I'm, I'm actually in the process now, I need to kind of move through this process. And, and almost all cases never go all the way through the process to, you know, like a hearing at the end. Um, typically they settle somewhere along the way. Yeah. Um, and we support with that as well. For the employers to have their employees have this backup from you as Vala. How how are they approached this this knowledge that you're out there? We don't really know yet. We don't engage directly with the employers, and so we don't know exactly. I do know how some investors have reacted. Okay, go on then. Tell us that one. <laughs> I think um, I think there's definitely a like a subset of people that I tell about Vala who suddenly get very afraid. <laughs> <laughs> And I, and I don't even think it's necessarily the bad actors. I think it's people who just suddenly think, oh, goodness, I get a lot of questions about, you know, bogus claims and things like that. And then I also get questions about, you know, is this going to be turned against me in some way? And the thing that I always say to people like that is if I could just show them a sliver of the stories that we hear every day, mm. you know, there's there's nothing bogus about the pain that is happening. And, and in fact, especially on TikTok, which we found to be um, one of the biggest places that people can find us. There is just this untapped, awful, like, seam of pain that's been running through all kinds of situations in the country. And it feels kind of like we've touched a live wire and they're all there kind of coming to us and asking, how can you help me? What can I do next? You know, how do I use this? So far, we're really just thinking about that side of things, if that makes sense. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Do, do you ever get surprised by the stories that you hear from people? Because, you know, you would think in this day and age, most employers particularly would be, you know, trying to be whiter than white with, with regards to the law and stay on the right side of the law. So, does it ever surprise you, some of the stories that you hear? I could turn your hair blue. <laughs> <laughs> it, it surprises me every day. I mean... I think that's the common assumption, I think, Linda, that this is a almost a relic of the past, the, the kind of treatment that we've heard about and that, you know, we're in a modern society and people don't treat each other that way now. I'm sure that that is the case in some employers. There are some great employers out there. But the stories that we hear on a day-to-day -day basis show that there are so many people who are just not being held accountable for their actions. And when I think about the impact that really... I want Vala to have on the world, it's creating that accountability, creating consequences for that kind of behaviour so that we all know that it's, it's not okay in this modern society. It almost strikes me, actually, you know, that you could almost produce a sister site to this 
aimed at employers who want advice, you know, on how to do Because there are difficult situations sometimes. You know, I've, I, I've been a manager in the past and I've had people reporting to me. And I know you do sometimes get situations that are incredibly sensitive and difficult to handle. And sometimes you can't really see a way around it, you know. Oh, yeah. And we we have thought about that. I think there is a future universe where we could do something like that. I think the big goal for Vala, though, is that this isn't just about employers and employees. This is also about landlords and tenants. This is also about pretty much anywhere where people are being treated as if no one is going to hold them to account and that people should have the recourse of the law, but they don't have access to that justice. And so we've talked a lot about, you know, do you go deep into employment or do you go broad across all those different issues? Right now, our hypothesis is that we should, you know, go broad so that tenants have the same kind of access to support that we're giving employees right now. Because a lot of these problems are on the face of it very similar in terms of, you know, the legality that the laws change, but the way that you address solving the problem is exactly the same. You have been awarded as a disruptive innovator and a rising star at the same time. And disruptive innovator is, is a fascinating phrase. It is the mm. saying of the moment. Are you quite proud of yourself for that one? Do you like that? It's interesting. Um, in my world, disruption is a word that's thrown around a lot. Um, I would say generally I view the term pretty cynically. I've actually spent my entire career building software that either unbundles or disintermediates professional services. And what really strikes me about the work that we're doing in the legal industry is we are fundamentally changing the delivery model of legal services by what we're doing at Vala. And by rebuilding that delivery model, we are then making legal services affordable for a group of the market, which is most of the market that just couldn't access the traditional delivery model because it was just unsustainable. It's with a traditional kind of solicitor's setup, you just can't reduce costs to the point of what the market needs for most of the market. And so sometimes I kind of squint at that term, but I do think actually we are genuinely disrupting that kind of fundamental delivery model that you know most of the industry works to. I don't think that the law firms will be losing customers to you. I think they're, they're customers that they would never have had to begin with because they would see how much the fees were and they would just go, no, I can't even go there, you know. That's exactly it. And it's, yeah. that is exactly what we learned when we were in the accounting industry because I, I was right there on the ground really early on on the online accounting days and it was, it was like a bit of a pitched battle between the software and the um, kind of accountants and they said, you know, you're trying to steal our customers and eat our lunch and things like that. And what actually happened was that the industry grew. Like if you look at the CAGR for the accounting industry over the past 10 years, it's massive. Like it has gotten so huge because software has essentially reshaped the accounting industry, but it's allowed it to access markets it never had access to before. I completely agree with you, Linda. I think that's exactly what's going to happen in the um, in the legal industry as well. Yeah. And I think it probably frees people up to do more interesting work as well, if you're a lawyer or if you're an accountant, because, you know, you, you haven't got the, the simple things to do. You're, you're, you're more sought after when it gets to a point where they actually do need legal advice or accounting advice. Yeah. And we, we've got big plans for that because once you support a consumer to be able to understand their legal issue, 
to articulate it, to manage it and own it themselves, then when they do still need some legal advice, some actual legal advice, not the organizational stuff that law firms have to do, all that kind of stuff, then when you present that to a lawyer, you know, it's wrapped up in a bow. It's so much easier for them to actually take a look at that case, assess the merits of the case, and then deliver that advice, which again, makes it more affordable and means that they're actually getting to do legal work and not organizational work or even therapy. Because there's a lot of emotional support that people need that lawyers are kind of having to take on at the moment. And, you know, that's that's not what their job really is. Yeah. I wonder if you could just give us an anonymous case study, the journey that just one particular. So that it's in our it's uh, we're able to understand a particular journey. So you have a client that comes to you and you the journey that they have taken a successful journey are you able to do that for yeah, us yeah i sure can so i'll give you an example of someone who came to us she had just been dismissed and she was new to the company that she had worked at she had been there for i think it was about say 6 months or something like that um the first 3 or 4 months everything was great she was the star new employee she was a really senior role, she was making big changes and everybody was happy, the bosses were happy, everything was good. So this this woman is a, a woman of colour. And then some of the other employees who weren't white came to her and said, you know, we actually have a few issues and now that you're here and, you know, it's so great to see someone in your senior position, there's a few things that we want to talk to you about. So she raised those issues to her employer and immediately got a very defensive, very negative reaction of, oh, you know, this is a great place to work. I don't understand why they would be complaining or something along those lines. And then the treatment of her turned on its head overnight. And suddenly it went from, you're doing an amazing job, we value you, etc., to you've used the wrong font in this document, <laughs> which is unacceptable. You have um, handled this meeting incorrectly, which is unacceptable like really small, really awful kind of just like constant criticism, constant picking at her. And within, you know, within I think a month or two of um, having raised this issue, she was dismissed for poor performance. And she came to us after she had been dismissed and um, she had already done some Googling and she said, you know, I think this was a race discrimination case and I think that victimization was involved. And I want everyone to know what victimization is because I think it's so important to know. So if you raise an issue like that at work to do with any kind of protected characteristic, so gender, age, LGBTQ status, things like that, if you raise an issue and say, hey, I think this is a problem, some kind of discriminatory problem, and your employer then treats you unfairly as a result of that complaint, that is illegal. That's called victimization. And so she said, well, I've already left. It's going to take me a while to find a similar job. So they're offering me just my standard notice, but I'd like some more pay, basically. And we said, okay, we've got this letter template. It's called a without prejudice letter. And it's often how people open settlement negotiations why don't you buy that template? We offer this service called a peace of mind check where you can kind of work with us and we help you fill in the template. And then you can send that off and kind of go from there. And she did that. And she also um, used ACAS to conciliation to kind of keep the, uh, the threat of tribunal open, if that makes sense. And um, she ended up settling with her employer and she got exactly what she asked for. I think she got what she needed and was really quite happy with the outcome there. So yeah, that's... Um, that's an example of how this can work. 
thank you. That, that's, yes, that's, uh, that's really that's, interesting. That's yeah. yeah, very interesting. Dennis, let's talk about then how you are where you are now, because you are from Tennessee in the USA, North Carolina. As a young woman, you taught yourself to code on a computer in your family. So how did this all come about? Why did you want to teach yourself to code and how did you get there? Every stereotype that you might think of in your head when you hear Appalachian Mountains, Tennessee, um, hillbilly, thing like that, that's, that's where I grew up. So I used to talk like this. <laughs> that's great. Every, everything that you can possibly think of um, is true and was my upbringing. And I had this wonderful grandmother who loved to do garage sales. Um, or I guess more kind of car boot sales over here. And every Saturday morning, she would read the newspaper, find out where everybody's doing their um, yard sales and garage sales, and she'd go out and do all of her shopping. And I was um, already a pretty precocious kid. I loved to read and things like that. And she found a computer that someone was selling. And this was, this was an Apple IIe. So this was back in the day. Nobody had computers. And she saw it was a bargain and she thought, well, Danae's smart. She might like that. And so she brought it home and my mom plugged it in and I had the first computer on the street and I was immediately kind of taken with it. I remember I was probably, goodness, I can't remember. I was a very young teenager, maybe 13 or something. The first application I remember writing was from my journal. I wrote a diary application so that I could keep a journal without my brother being able to read it. <laughs> It's a great idea. <laughs> and so I, I was pouring my teenage angst out in this Apple Basic code. <laughs> and then, you know, AOL came and the internet came and I was just fascinated with all of it. And it, it really did seem to me, and it became my ticket out of there. I, I never really thought I was going to stay in Appalachia. The place that I grew up in is most people never leave. My family, they grew up in the hills. Like my mom didn't have access to running water until she was maybe in high school. Like we're, we're talking like proper rural mountain mm -hmm. people. And so I really, I was fascinated with technology and I also appreciated that it, it would get me places. And so I just, I just read all the little books, you know, there were maybe like three books at the time that could teach you how to code and bang my head against the wall and just learned how to do it. Now, I also read somewhere that you created Knickers. This is a lingerie blog that mm. came to be the first online publication for laundry in Europe. And it was ranked number one for the term Knickers on Google for five years. Explain yourself, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this, this was such an interesting time on the internet. And I don't know about everyone else, but because I grew up as the internet was, was starting, I've kind of lived my entire life online. And I guess I'm probably the first generation who did that. And so when I moved over here, it was really early on when I moved over here, there was this new thing called blogging. There was a little bit of it before I moved. And then the new thing was not just blogging, but it was called pro blogging. And, and it was this brand new profession that you could do because Google had just launched AdWords and AdSense and the ability for you to put an ad on your website and earn money for the clicks. Like this whole industry was just nascent at the time. And at the same time, I had, I had started dating this guy and he was like, oh, you know, do you have any like nice lingerie or anything like that? And I, you know, I'm a hillbilly from Tennessee. I don't have anything nice. So I went and got um, bra sized in 
I don't know, Marks and Spencers, Jenner, something like that. And they said, oh, well, you're a, I can't remember, something G. And I was horrified. I have never, like in America, a G cup is some kind of like alien thing. And there was this incredible amount of like, almost like shame and confusion I had about this bra size. And I went online and I was trying to find like women talking to other women about lingerie. And all I found was honestly just porn. And I was like, no, this isn't okay. And, and so I started writing about, ostensibly about a lingerie, but it was really about bra sizing, confidence, helping women feel confident about the body that they have rather than the body that they wish they had and luxury lingerie specifically. And I remember that the first year, it turns out there was this thing called the Salon de la Lingerie, which is like this huge trade show in Paris. And I basically blagged my way into this <laughs> with some of my friends. And I was wandering around with this press badge that just said knickers on it. Which <laughs> and people would be like, you know, who are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm here for a blog. And they're like, what's a blog? And so the first year I was there, I was explaining to everyone what a blog was. You know, five years later, by the time I was going there, then everybody was like, oh, Nika's blog, come have champagne. Like, there was like this whole, like the whole industry had grown up. Everybody knew what it was. Everybody got online publishing. And I had built this audience of luxury lingerie lovers who, you know, were fascinated with like, what's the latest thing coming out of all of these like indie designers and things. So yeah, I, that's how I learned online marketing. That's how I learned content um, and SEO. It was all something I was doing on the side while I was working at Napier. Denny, it's been great talking to you. It really has. Thank you both, um, Susie and Linda. That's all we have time for today on Women Making Waves. Our thanks to our guests, Berenice Smith and Denae Shell. Now, we're always on the lookout to feature women living extraordinary lives, so please do contact us if you know of someone we should be talking to. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at WomenMakingWaves. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website womenmakingwaves.co.uk where you can hear all of our interviews. Music